Sometimes caregiving is so overwhelming or it's shifting and you're thinking, now I don't know what to do about this, but I do know how to do my job. And so it reinforces that sense of strength in an individual. And very often for us too, our work cohort, they become family as well. Hi, I'm Bobby. After being a caregiver for my father-in-law, Roger, and understanding firsthand what it's really like, I knew that I wanted to support other caregivers. I am now a certified caregiving consultant and educator, a caregiver support group leader, and a speaker at conferences and webinars nationally and internationally. And I'm her husband, Mike, and I'm a certified caregiver advocate and certified music therapist. And this is Roger That podcast dedicated to guiding you through the heavy haze of dementia. Here, we tend to focus on the caregiver, offer our practical insights, and share some emotional support. And we might even share a laugh or two, and we all know laughter is the best medicine. And don't forget the wine, Mike. Come on, I never forget your wine. Not yet. (laughs) (laughs) So, you often um, do presentations, and you, when you speak to people about caregiving, you often talk about putting a care team in place. Well, that's one of my one of my main focuses, which is called prepare to care what every adult needs to know about Alzheimer's and dementia before and after it strikes home. And um, part of that now more than ever is reaching out to employers as more and more working people have become caregivers. So you want to gather your care team, whether it's family members or friends or outreach in the community and also to your employers. And that brings us to today's guest. She's been a caregiver for family and friends, both local and at a distance, and believes caregiving is not location-based. It's a relationship. In addition to her personal experience, she has been a psychotherapist, hospital, hospice volunteer, and caregiver coach and educator. She is certified to teach caregiving programs and is presented at national conferences. Her goal is to help caregivers find manageability, ease, and joy in caregiving. Please welcome Kathy Koenig. Welcome, Kathy. Hi, Kathy. Hi, Mike. Hi, Bobby. Thanks so much for having me today. Well, I, I was really pleased that you were going to be available. You know, you and I share some of the same thought processes. I often tell people that caregiving is not location-based because it's difficult for them to make the decision to put someone in a care home. But I recently found out after talking to you that uh, another goal of ours is reaching out to employers. Can you tell us a little about your personal caregiving and then we can talk about the outreach? I think I just came to caregiving pretty naturally because I saw it around me a lot in my growing up years. I had, um, I lost my, my mom early in life. And, you know, I was one of five kids with a dad who was going off to work, but, you know, I had grandmas who were very involved with us, um, cousins, other family who just kind of stepped in to sort of nurture us and help us. And, but I also saw them doing that in other relationships. So it, it's, um, I know it doesn't come naturally to everybody, but for me, it sort of got seeded pretty early. And that led into eventually my becoming my dad's caregiver late in his life. And that was a more natural process because I knew him, I knew his, his rhythms. Um, we had set up a lot of things in advance. We had plans in place, we'd had conversations. Um, and so 
and I knew his medical team. And because I was also working in that in the community, um, his medical team knew me as well. So that was easy. Um, later on, I had the experience of doing a longer distance caregiving situation for my husband's sister, who I did not know well at all, who lived in another part of the country. And, and it was very, um, it was very sudden. And so we had nothing in place. And so we had to put that stuff together very quickly. And it was, she was very, very ill. And so it was a short term situation for about four months. Um, but over over those four months flying back and forth across the country, I became just even more convinced that like this has to be easier for caregivers. And my husband and I were really skilled at this and we found it difficult. Um, we put together still a good team and a good plan, but it was, it was challenging and that made me really want to dig down deeper to do things to make life easier for caregivers. Yeah, anything we can do to accomplish that. You know, your situation of flying back and forth across the country uh, kind of reminded me when my mother was taken ill and she lived in Florida. And while my sister and brothers lived there too, they were very busy raising families. You had young children, very much involved in their jobs. So I would fly in and, you know, spend some time with her and come back home and eventually reach the point where uh, I took a leave of absence from my job and just said, I'm going to I'm going to be with her until she, either she's well or, you know, she passes. Unfortunately, she passed pretty quickly, so we never actually got to have her home. But that anxiety and that feeling of how do I manage this from far away was definitely something that we shared. And then we had Mike's dad with us. He moved in when his Mike's mom passed away, and we had him here for seven years in full control of that, which educated me for what I do now. <laughs> <laughs> you mentioned that you guys had, had discussions and kind of had the, the care team in place. Uh, when, when did you have those discussions and put that plan together? You know, with my dad, it was, it was sort of gradual. He had um, COPD and emphysema, so his decline was over time. And we had we had almost annually in the spring a hospitalization that would go on for days at a time. And this was several years ago when people used to stay in the hospital much longer, and there was time to plan. But but with each each event, you know, we just sort of knew that that we might be you know, getting closer at some point and what, what kinds of things did he or did he not want? And sometimes having those conversations while he was in the hospital and under treatment, um, it brought those things up. And because I had worked in that hospital system and my first job um, early on, like in my twenties was in an ICU and a CCU. So I saw, you know, some really harsh stuff and kind of knew um, I, I, there were things I could explain to him about, intubation and end of life kinds of things. And so we had those conversations and, and he shared what it was he wanted. Um, interestingly, he did not share those things with my brothers, which became a problem later on when we were actually confronted with that. And I would have, I would have to say it was good to have the conversations because I had a baseline understanding of what he wanted, but I would have to also say that that making those plans also requires flexibility because when it got down to having somebody ask me that question in the hallway of an emergency room, it was a very different experience 
And we found that, that there were some other options besides intubation, and we went with those. The, one of the strangest things was a phone call I got from my dad's physician um, a few weeks into this, you know, last time, shortly before he passed away, was that because um, he wasn't eating and he was really declining and it didn't matter what we brought him. He had no appetite. But towards the very end, he wanted a feeding tube and we were all really surprised by that and even his physician. So, so we did it and we did it with a plan so that we weren't in a situation where removing that would be difficult. And, and um, I could see at the time that, that those conversations we'd had earlier still had, um, had value, but, but when people are in the thick of it, sometimes you need to shift gears a little bit and be ready and prepared to do that and not be really hard and rigid. So, um, and that was, that was a very short-term thing with the feeding tube, but, um, but, it, but it also met his need at the time. You know, it was, it was just an, an interesting experience, but it also just told me about being flexible. It's interesting that, you know, that he changed his mind, and I'm glad you brought that up because people have living wills, people have DNRs in place, but they also have the right to change their mind. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> and um, and sometimes it does surprise you. And but I think yeah, particularly when somebody can and is capable. My father was very capable, very lucid to the very last minute. Um, you know, you you want to honor that. I wanted to honor that. Um, but I was also glad I had had other conversations with him prior to that about what it was he wanted. You know, it was it was it put me in um, in a position where he. He trusted me a lot. I don't. I didn't take that lightly. Well, he was definitely lucky to have you, and with your experience, having done it, not only for family members but you know for other people and very close and also far away, you bring authenticity to your caregiving outreach. I hear so many times caregivers say, "If you haven't done it, there's no way that you can understand." And I, I think that there's there's truth in that. I think that, and I come to it with the experience of, of doing it very intimately for somebody as close as my father to being an, another like ripple out in that pond with my sister-in-law. And actually in that case, my mental health training and background came in to, was really helpful because she had a mental health diagnosis as well. And so because and that I was able to kind of be helpful about the way we approach certain things um, and kept that kept some things calm down there. Um, but even, you know, I've been a caregiver um, for friends um, and, and I'm now kind of in a relationship with somebody a little farther out in a ripple in, the pond, in that pond of just also being somebody who can um, source solutions or resources for somebody so that they're not having to expend their energy doing that. You know, I mentioned in the introduction about outreach to employers. I understand from talking to you that you were pretty far in that process until COVID hit. Could you talk about that a little bit? You know, I was beginning to make some inroads with some organizations about helping them, um, particularly some of the organizations in my community where a lot of people work in teams. And some of these organizations do have really good employee benefits and, and support systems in place. but one of the areas I think has been 
under probably repre represented and reported prior to COVID is how many people are caregivers in and employed. Exactly. A lot of people have really kept that um, under the radar because they've been concerned that it will keep them out of um, situations where they might get ad an advancement or that it will somehow negatively um, be perceived. But at the same time, by not sharing that at times, sometimes we have, and I remember doing this when, and I had at least the flexibility when I was working and taking care of my dad, I was literally across the street. My office building was across the street from the hospital. And I would just back and forth a couple times a day to take care of things in between my, my clients I was seeing. So I had a lot of flexibility, but I know a lot of people don't. And people sometimes have to come in late because they're, they're setting things up in the morning or they have to take somebody to an appointment and they're not always able to share that. And, and so sometimes it gets misperceived too by a team that like, why is so-and-so not here? Why are, what are they doing? And, they, and people just don't know. And I think being able to bring more of that out in the open, I think some of the blessings, if, you, if we can find some, and I'm always looking for them in a pandemic, is that we now see what people's lives are like a little more fully. <laughs> we see pets running through rooms or children in the background, but we also see people caregiving in their homes. And so it's not in the shadows anymore. And, you know, given the numbers, you know, the numbers that came out in the spring, you know, we had jumped up to like 53 million reported caregivers in the United States. We know with this pandemic, that's only, you know, accelerated now. Those numbers are only. You know, dementia and Alzheimer's and the other forms of dementia. Um, another worldwide pandemic, because there are millions of people every single day and caregivers are an army of millions who very often are doing it on their own, an invisible army, at, and definitely in the workplace. And I think part of what drives that is most, certainly not all, but most caregivers are women. And women in the workplace already have concerns about how they're perceived as, you know, taking care of their children, taking time off when a, when a child gets sick. And then when you add this in there, I can understand the reluctance to go to an employer and, and explain this situation. But I think as more and more people are being affected, and some of those are the managers and the upper tier people in these companies, they may become more open to it. Do you consider going to HR and explaining what it's like for, for family caregivers and asking their assistance in figuring out ways to make it easier. Um, I had did a presentation for here in Loudoun County, the Loudoun Senior Interest Network, explaining how there could be some very inexpensive or no cost opportunities to help caregivers in the workplace. Did you experience that? I know you said, you know, COVID, you know, kind of brought it to a halt. I think I was just in the early stages of really sort of being able to make some inroads there. But I do think, I do, th because the people in HR, it's interesting, I, and probably you know this too, that you can almost go anywhere and there's a conversation to be had about caregiving. It's not like this is like esoteric um, or unusual that when you say what you do, people are like, oh, I've done that. Or yes, my I've seen my mother be so overwhelmed. And it is often we'll hear about women. But I've also spoken with uh, male um, company managers and, and 
owners who have had parents' experiences. I think sometimes their approach to it has been a little more, they've hired help or whatever, but they, they have some recognition that this is something that is preying on people's minds all the time. It's always, it's like, it can be very low level noise or it can really be, you know, screaming at you um, depending on the day. I think that there's a lot of opportunity to be had. I do know that some of the research that had come out to this spring had said that there had been a jump over the last few years in people reporting that they felt they were there was some retaliation in the workplace or just some discrimination in the workplace because of caregiving. But I'm hoping that, that there's going to be a shift in that and we can address that more openly. And perhaps, perhaps with the pandemic too, giving perhaps a little more flexibility in where people are working from, it may create more flexibility with employers to do. You know, I'm hopeful. You know, it's interesting because I look back and uh, I really appreciated it then, but at the height of my dad's illness and leading into the, the height, I had a supervisor that was amazing. And I told him, hey, you know, I got this situation at home with my dad. And he looked me dead straight in the eye and he said, Mike, let me tell you something. He said, you can always find another job. You can't find another family. Just give me a heads up and you need to, and you need to do what you need to do back there. Even if it's only a five minute heads up that you're leaving. He said, just give me that heads up. He said, because you can always get another job. And... I really appreciated that sentiment then, and I carried that forward when I, um, I was a supervisor then, but then later on, I had two people that worked for me that were caregivers for their parents. And I brought that same attitude over. Look, you go take care of family. You can always find another job. The work will be here tomorrow. <laughs> I like that the work will be here tomorrow rather than hearing you can always find another job because that could be taken as threatening. No, no, he did, <laughs> but he didn't say it in a threatening manner. It was it was compassion saying you can always get another job. Yeah. You can't get another family. Right. I think if more and more if if we're allowed in after COVID to go in and and talk to managers and let them see that there are ways to be supportive that keeps that employee doing their job while they're also caregiving, then more support will, and more understanding will, will come forward. Um, lunch and learn programs, um, having a caregiver support group available either during lunchtime or um, after work, because the last thing a caregiver needs to do is spend all day at their job, go home and have to care for somebody, and on top of that, try to relieve some of their stress by joining a caregiver group and putting another thing on their, their list of things to do. Exactly. That was one of the things I was proposing to one of the companies was about coming in, because they were very strong in their lunch and learn programs and a lot of those kinds of things. It's like, can we bring this in and have this be something in your system that that supports that? Because also reinforcing to companies, your biggest investment is your employee. They are your very Absolutely. biggest investment. And you've, you've spent time training them and educating them and all of the things that go into that. And 
and and and very often too for caregivers it's like the one place you can go where there's there's it's consistent you know what it is you're doing you can feel capable and and have the capacity for it and because sometimes caregiving is so overwhelming or it's shifting and you're thinking now I don't know what to do about this but I do know how to do my job and so it reinforces that sense of uh, strength in an individual and 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 so very often for us too our work cohort they become family as well you know sometimes that's where our friendships are mm-hmm. our other families that we create in our lives um, sometimes that's where the fun is and so being able to go there or have those relationships helps take the pressure off of this other you know part of our life that's one of the things that I was kind of jealous of Mike during our caregiving years that he got to go to work and he got to spend time with his co-workers and his friends and go to lunch um, while I was here at home taking care of his dad. Now opposite that he was feeling very guilty because he was there doing that and I was home taking care of his dad. What I would ideally like to see is a day center for people with dementia in the workplace, similar to some of these really large companies that introduced um, childcare centers for their working employees. That's too much to ask going in first, <laughs> <laughs> but once we get the foot, our foot in the door, we might be able to, to go for something like that. But everything that you've said about support for working caregivers, you know, in the workplace, enhances their ability to right. do their job. And, and it, it provides for them long-term, it provides um, the economics because caregiving is not inexpensive and so much of it comes out of our own pockets and it helps provide for long-term retirement benefits. So it's, it's just good for the overall lifespan of people. Um, and if you're in a situation where they outfit the company, in my case, it was the government, where they were so supportive of me, what do, and and loyal to me, what does that, what does that do for me? That makes me loyal to them, and so you you have that coexistent loyalty. Yes, absolutely. And I think I, I you know I just see us perhaps maybe coming more. It sounds like Mike too from your situation, like you had a manager who came from his heart, like that's why it felt and sounded different to you than like you can get another job kind of thing. That he, that he was coming from his heart, and so. You know, I think the more heart-centered we can we can be as well, and and tap into that that part of somebody else's experience. That's where um, I think we make. I think that's where we're going to make stronger connections. And if you should run into that that employer who didn't come from the heart, and in suggesting you can always find another job, if that person becomes educated. You don't want to lose this person and have to start over. That can make a difference and it can save somebody's yes. job. Yes, and, and as you said, Bobby, too, I think that we can come in and offer options that you know that can be tailor-made for those particular work situations uh, that that can be very customized, that, that allows things to keep rolling and, and, and moving along smoothly so things aren't dropped. Because I think, too, if people, if members of say a team, if there's a team of people who work together and they all understand what's happening for some reason, you know, then there's less resentment that builds too about why is so-and-so getting time off or what have you, because you know, something can happen in a heartbeat that changes your life. Any one of those people on a team could have 
an accident on their way to work. And now, you know, I mean, it's like things mm -hmm. can happen to us. And I think when we recognize that, we say, like, oh, now I get it. But, but I don't want to have to experience something terrible to sort of get it. Um, and I think being able to show people that there are options and solutions, even before it gets to the point of, of a lot of things deteriorating in the workspace that ha then have to be shorn up again. Yeah, one thing that people hear from me often is we're, we're all fine until we're not. And, and that can change in, in an instant. And, and we saw that um, this year with our, with our son-in-law who was in a horrific accident and ended up with, you know, uh, a brain injury. The other thing I try to point out, like you, with the situation with your son-in-law, that caregiving is not always about someone who's elderly. And so often we just go to that. Um, and this happens across all age ranges. And so, you know, this can be, you know, caregiving may be, it may be an ending event in someone's life, but it may, there may also be recovery too. This may be that somebody needs some support for several months while their spouse goes through chemotherapy and radiation and all this other stuff. So maybe they can't be traveling now as much. Um, they have children at home they have to support as well. And, but it's, but it may be short term and it kind of, I think, wakes people up to the vulnerability that we all have as human beings. You know, it reminds me of when I was in my doctor's office having my annual checkup and was asked if I have a living will. And I looked at the nurse and I said, do you only ask that of old people? And she said, absolutely not. We ask that of everybody because anybody can have an accident at any time. I agree. And, th but I'll take it a step further. Every time I go to my doctor's office and, you know, they're just going through the template now of think questions they have to ask every time I say, you need a question in there about whether somebody is or is not a caregiver because it's a risk factor for their health. And that will tell you something. If they tell you that they're a caregiver, you may look a little deeper at things like their blood pressure or their weight or, or just their mood. I mean, it, it, you look at them in a different way. And so I'm really kind of pushing for that to be, I'm happy that they ask about living wills. I'm happy that they ask about, you know, if you're safe in your home um, with, with somebody else, but like, let's also ask, are you a caregiver? I love that. I want to step back for a second. A couple times you mentioned about the um, end of life. And there's that period of transitioning from a caregiver. And I guess you've experienced it a couple times with your dad and then with other um, family members from a distance or whatever. Do you have any tips or pearls of wisdom for that person that's going from being a caregiver to not being a caregiver? You know, this is a piece I'm currently working on that really kind of, I've been working on calling self-care, self-fullness, um, because that self-care thing can look, I think we have different images about it. And I think being self-full really, for me, speaks to more like our cup is at least half full, so we've got something to give, or we're always kind of gathering, we're, we're sort of gathering information or resources for an experience in life. So we get full, that container gets really, you know, heavy after a while. Um, and then when it's, when the experience is over, it then becomes, I think, a time for releasing it and finding a way I'm looking at 
ways to help people process releasing and letting the experience go so that they they then have more renewed energy for the next thing that's coming in their life. It, it includes a sort of honoring the experience of caregiving, honoring the, the person and whatever, but, but also sort of the releasing of all of that stuff that got gathered up um, for caregiving. And being able to go through it and sift through it for, for the special moments that, that become so meaningful once you've got past the grief and as you said the letting yeah. go and you know yeah because yeah, I, I think you know there's always these nuggets there's always these treasures and I this is even just a very concrete example of my father was somebody who just held on to things um, lots of things and I um, when I would come to his house and I would clean he'd be like oh she threw away all the newspapers like well they're old it's time to go um, but but when it came to cleaning out his house that that was an event. Um, we I mean, we found things we found wedding gifts that he and my mother had never even used. And so I've t- I took those things into my house and I use them now. But it was just even the tiny treasure my husband found and we still have of a little very yellowed piece of paper that we found in the pocket of his military uniform that had um, the time of the train he was taking from the East Coast back to Des Moines to come home. But I had gone with my father to Normandy for the 50th anniversary of D-Day because my father was um, was part of that, D-Day plus four. I learned tons about my father and his military experience in that event. But, but then having that little piece of paper became even a greater treasure. But, but then you start, as you find those, literally the physical nuggets, it, I think you can find sort of the bits of the person too. And maybe the moments when you laughed about stuff or the silly stuff, or um, because so much of it gets heavy that, you know, where was the joy in that? What did we laugh about and taking those treasures, you know, and, and, and moving those forward and carrying those forward is as you let go of maybe the piece of furniture that's just ready to go or. This has been very, very enlightening. I, I can't thank you enough, Kathy, for for being on the show. And I'm sure you brought some pearls to our listeners. I know you brought some pearls to Bobby and I. I hope so. That (laughs) that just really feels like my service in the world is to just somehow be helpful to others and to really, you know, caregivers. I just I love them. I just love them. And I think when you get caregivers together, too. Oh, my gosh, they are the most generous people. They are so generous with one another. And I think, too, if we can if we can continue to create communities for them, whether that's in the workplace or other places, it, it just continues to shore up um, people's lives. And they find, they find, you know, even in the really hard, dark moments, they start laughing about stuff. They, they find those, they find joy and they bring it to one another. So. Well, Kathy, thank you so much. Like Mike said, I know that our listeners learned a good bit. And every time caregivers get together to start sharing, we, we learn a good bit as well. Thank you again for being with us today. You know, Kathy gave us a lot to think about. And one of the things that really struck me was tell the doctors they need to ask another question. Are you a caregiver? It can affect your blood pressure and it can affect the way you look and what your mood is. That's, that's brilliant. Yes, absolutely. That's probably 
the most important thing she mentioned. Uh, it's in the top two. One of the things she, she said, we know, but it was nice to hear somebody else say it, is that caregivers are so generous and caregivers are so understanding when you meet up with another caregiver. There's that, that camaraderie of, of shared experience and empathy and sympathy um, and non-judgment that goes along with it. And that is just so awesome. And we see examples of that every time we have a guest on our show, that yes. dedication to helping others and finding people uh, in all walks of life who are doing this, some people that you wouldn't even think of. The more we share and the more we show how universal it is, the more we can help the millions of caregivers out there. The other thing that she said is so important, and we've said it many, many, many times, is the care team in place, or as she said, circles of care. And again, getting the care team in place, getting everything spelled out prior and planning is just so, so, so very important. I don't want to miss an opportunity to talk more about reaching out to employers and, and how that, that can benefit them and help them keep their, keep their caregivers working. You can find more information about Kathy on our show website at rogerthat.show. This has been Roger That. I'm Bobby. So please subscribe to the show, go to iTunes or the Roger That Facebook page and post a review. Follow us on Facebook and Twitter. If you have a question or issue you'd like for us to address, please post on the Roger That Facebook page. If you would like your identity to remain private, you can direct message your question on Facebook and we will answer. To find out more about us, head over to rogerthat.show. That's Roger, R-O-D-G-E-R, that, dot show. Roger That is produced by Missing Link, a media podcast company dedicated to connecting people to intelligent, engaging, and informative content. Also in the Missing Link lineup of podcasts is the designated drinker show, the podcast raising the bar on craft cocktails. Here you meet interesting folks, enjoy boozy banter, and learn how to make craft cocktails from a master. And if you're looking for a whole new way to enjoy theater, check out Between Acts, an immersive audio theater podcast experience. Each episode takes you on a spellbinding journey through the works of newfound playwrights, from dramas to comedies and all those in between. Find Missing Link's League of Podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you find your podcast. Please don't forget to subscribe, download, and review the shows as your review helps our show reach new audiences. To find out more about Missing Link, visit missinglink.company.